Welcome to the Bale Christian Church Podcast. Summer of Psalms continues with Psalm 15. Youth Pastor Noah Adkins has a message titled, Questions. At Bale Christian Church, we believe in training followers of Christ to worship, gather, give, and serve. That song always makes me think of the summertime, right? Like he's talking about going on vacation and an island in the sun. And, um, you know, for me personally, I don't know if you guys agree, but for me personally, I actually feel like summertime is more of a time to reflect than even the end of the year because so much of, of my life kind of revolves around school and the, and the school calendar. So summertime is that moment where we kind of step back and like, as adults, we get to spend more time with our family. The kids are out of school. We're going on vacation. We're interacting with them more. And for, for our students, it's an opportunity for them to go to summer camp and really kind of make that commitment and connection um, to Christ. And so it's a really great time for reflection. And I think that this series that we're doing um, in Psalms is actually really great. I think it's perfect for the summertime. And speaking of camp, I was actually at camp last week. I took our middle schoolers to camp. Um, and I will tell you, I was asked a question at camp that every parent who has ever taken a child anywhere has been asked. It's a question that uh, I think it's actually the single most asked question in human history. I'll stand by that. I'm going to say the question, and if you know it, say it with me. Are we there there yet? That's right. Another way, usually the kids will say, uh, well, when are we going to get there? It's either, are we there yet or when are we going to get there? That's pretty much the same question, but that's the one, right? So I took 46 middle schoolers to camp last week. It's the most we've ever taken. It was a good time. We had 10 adult youth leaders and then 46 students. And about two hours into the bus ride, I had already been asked, um, are we there yet? Approximately 275,000 times. And I was, I was kind of done. Um, So I decided to grab the bus microphone on the big 56 passenger buses. They have these bus microphones. And I was like, I'm going to make an announcement. I was like, I'm feeling kind of cute and kind of fun. Like I'm going to, I'm going to have some fun with the students, right? And give them the information they want. So I get on the bus mic and this is what I do. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, this is your co-pilot speaking. We're cruising at an altitude of sea level, traveling about 65 miles an hour. Our estimated time of arrival CIY is a... Approximately five hours. The pilot has turned on the fasten seatbelt sign, so make sure and buckle up while you're seated. And thank you for traveling with us. It's great. I felt funny. I felt smart. I answered the question. I wasn't going to have to deal with it again, right? So the microphone's at the front of the bus, and there is a sixth grade boy sitting right here. And I walked about two feet as I made my way to the, to the back of the bus, and, and the young man, the sixth grade boy, he says, Pastor Noah, and I looked down at this sweet summer child, and I said, yes, Colton Hardy? <laughs> Mike's in the back. And he said, what do you think he said? Are we, are we there yet? Kids ask questions. That's what kids do. Kids ask questions. They never stop asking questions. It's, it's how they discover things about the world. It's how they learn things about the world. And honestly, truth be told, I don't mind it at all. When Colton asked that question, I answered the same thing that I had just said a couple of seconds ago. 
I didn't really mind it at all. Because what I have found is if you take enough time to answer the silly questions, kids will trust you. And then you'll get to hear them ask the serious questions later on, the ones that really matter. Because questions help us to grow and learn. Questions can be profoundly important. They can impart wisdom and knowledge. It's the reason why we say there are no stupid questions, right? Because questions help us to learn. They help us to grow in our knowledge. In fact, the most popular game show of all time. Does anybody know what it is? Jeopardy. It's Jeopardy. That's a whole game about questions. You literally give the answer in the form of a question. So as a society, we pretty much understand that questions are important. Personally, I believe the two most pivotal moments in a human being's life center around questions. Now, you may not agree with me, but let let me give you a first example. I'll start with the, this is the second most important pivotal question that anyone can ever hear or answer. And here it is. Will you marry me? That's the question. That's the the second most important question you'll ever answer. I had the distinct honor of officiating a wedding on Friday. And as I finished the ceremony and went to the reception, as I was driving back home, I realized that for those two newlyweds, nothing was ever going to be the same. Their lifelong journey was just starting, but it actually began when the groom asked the bride a question. Many of, many of us in this auditorium have either asked that question or we've answered that question, and our lives were never the same afterwards. The question, will you marry me, it changes you. If you answer yes, it changes both of you. If you answer no, it still changes both of you. It's an important question. That's just one example of why questions are so important. And just like the question, will you marry me, can change someone's life, the question that we're going to be asking today is literally the most important question anyone can ask. This question will change you if you bother to ask it. This question that we're looking at today, it will change you if you bother to learn the answer. So this summer, as I said, we're, we're looking through Psalms, and the Psalms, they don't shy away from hard questions. The Psalms detail moments of anguish and anger and defeat, moments of, of victory and happiness, and even moments of fear and moments of doubting in God and what his plan is and what he has going on. Essentially, the entire human experience is worked out through the Psalms and the writings of David. David, he's described as a man after God's own heart, and he wrote a large portion of the Psalms. David, he he often asked deeply profound questions, questions that get to the heart of the identity of every human. And the psalm we'll be studying today, I think David asks the question, the most important question, the question everyone should ask. So I want you guys to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 15. That's where we're going to be at today. I'll give you a moment to turn to that or scroll to that or whatever you do. I've got mine already open. Psalm 15, starting with verse one, it says, Lord, who may be a guest in your home? Who may live on your holy hill? Whoever lives a blameless life, does what is right and speaks honestly. He does not slander or do harm to others. 
or insult his neighbor. He despises a reprobate, but honors the Lord's loyal followers. He makes firm commitments and does not renege on his promise. He does not charge interest when he lends his money. He does not take bribes to testify against the innocent. The one who lives like this will never be shaken. Did you guys catch the question? It's right at the beginning. David doesn't waste any time. It's right in verse one. Lord, who may be a guest in your home? Who may live on your holy hill? David gets right to the heart of the matter, right at the beginning of the psalm. He doesn't waste any time. David wasn't afraid to ask the tough questions. He understood the importance that questions play in figuring this whole thing out. And there are a lot of questions that we ask that kind of have no merit. Questions like, well, are we there yet, right? There are questions like that that we all ask. But here, David asks the right question. He's asking the right kinds of question. He gets to the heart of what it means to be human. Let's break the question down. So, so it's, it's verse 1. It says, Lord, who may be a guest in your home? And then it says, who may live on your holy hill? So the question, who may, a guest, who may be a guest in your home? It's referencing the tabernacle of God right? That's the place where God dwelled among men and where men could interact with God through the priests and the sacrificial system detailed in the Old Testament. It's, it's where God dwelled before um, the temple was built in Jerusalem, right? The holy hill in the second part of verse one, it's referencing Mount Zion. That's where God interacted with Moses, gave the 10 commandments and, and another place where God interacted with man. So although verse one might look like two separate questions, David is really asking one question in two separate ways. And the question is simply, who has the right to live in the presence of God? That's the question. That's the question we should all be asking. That's the most important, the most pivotal question you will ever ask in your life. And the reason I think it's the most important question anyone can ever ask is because it's at the heart of why we exist This question is a part of why we exist. Who has the right to live in the presence of God? It's the most important thing we can ask because living in the presence of God is what we were created for. This is a question about how we live in our eternal destination. Paul says this in Colossians 1.16, for all things in heaven and on earth were created in him. All things, whether visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions, whether principalities or powers, All things were created through him and for him. All things were created through him and for him. We were created to be in community and relationship with God, glorifying him and enjoying his creation. And we had that. When humanity was first created and placed in the Garden of Eden, we had relationship with God until we chose sin. Sin got in the way of what we were created for. The ability to interact with our creator was no longer possible when sin entered into the world because a sinful creature cannot stand before a holy and perfect God. The entirety of the Bible is the story of God's relentless pursuit to reestablish relationship with us, his creation, after we willingly separated ourselves from him when we sinned. So the question that David asks in Psalm 15, it's really the question that we all seek to answer. It's a question at the heart of the human experience. 
How do we reclaim the thing that we were actually created to have? Who has the right to live in the presence of God? So, so that's the question. That's verse one and why it's so important. I want to go back over the answer, okay? So we have the question and then David immediately answers his own question. So it's actually really, really excellent that he does that for us. So look at, look at Psalm 15 again. We're going to read through it. Lord, who may be a guest in your home? Who may live on your holy hill? That's the question, right? And here's the answer. Whoever lives a blameless life does what is right and speaks honestly. He does not slander or do harm to others or insult his neighbor. He despises a reprobate, but honors the Lord's loyal followers. He makes firm commitments and does not renege on his promise. He does not charge interest when he lends his money. He does not take bribes to testify against the innocent. The one who lives like this will never be shaken. So the question's answered in detail. We broke down the question. Now we're going to break down the answer. So in verses two through five in Psalm 15, David lays out character traits and actions that define who can live in the presence of God. In this list, there are five positive things, right? Five, five positive commands. Those are actions that people seeking God should do. And then there are five negative things, not negative meaning bad, but negative meaning actions that people who are seeking God should not do. So there's five positive and five negative. So the person who wants to enter, this is important, hear me now, the person who wants to enter God's presence and dwell there must have a life that is characterized not just by the absence of evil, but also by actively doing good. So let's look at these 10 actions that David lists. The person seeking community uh, with God should, one, live a blameless life, should do what is right, should speak honestly, should avoid the company and in, in influence of evil people. And that's, that's despising a reprobate. That's what that means. To despise someone is to kind of push them away or cast them out. And they should seek... Uh, the companionship and positive influence of Christ's followers. That's what honoring the Lord's loyal followers, that's what that means. It's putting them in a position of importance in your life. The last positive trait, it should make firm commitments to do good, commitments that aren't wishy-washy. Those are the positive commands, the things that we should do to be in community with God. So now let's look at the things that we should not do. The person seeking community with God should not slander, should not do harm to others, should not insult anyone, including politicians, should not take advantage, should, sorry, should not take advantage or exploit anyone who is in distress. And that's what it's meant by charging interest. In this period of time with the Israelites, if you needed to borrow money, you were probably in a bad spot. So to charge interest would be to heap on um, insult to injury, right? And they should not corrupt and pervert justice. We serve a just and loving God, and that's what he wants from us as well. So when you break it down like this and you look at every requirement in verses two through five, what you see is the only person who's able to live in the presence of God is someone who is literally perfect. That's the only person that can dwell in the presence of God. If we sum up the whole list, only a person who is purely righteous in every way and perfectly holy in every way may live in the presence of God. And, and if we're honest, that really shouldn't be news to us. If we look at what Jesus himself taught in the Sermon on the Mount, it's in Matthew 5, 
At the end of this group of teachings at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And this command is from Jesus and it mirrors the requirements in Psalm 15. So if we're honest with ourselves, it kind of puts us in a predicament, right? Because although we were created for relationship with God, none of us are perfect. I mean, I I don't know about you guys. I know I'm not. So I'm kind of in a tough spot. None of us meets the requirements laid out in the psalm because as Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And as we said before, God cannot allow sin in his presence. David himself, David says the same thing in Psalm 5 when he writes, certainly you are not a God who approves of evil. Evil people cannot dwell with you. Arrogant people cannot stand in your presence. You hate all who behave wickedly. You destroy liars. The Lord despises violent and deceitful people. None of us meet the requirements listed in Psalm 15. If we are created to have relationship with God, and this is the standard, we fall short. That's, that's not very encouraging for Sunday morning, is it? But the application is where it gets better. So we're going to move on to the, what does this have to do with me? What does this question that David poses and, and this list of things that we should do and the things that we shouldn't do, what does this have to do with us, the people sitting in this room? So here are the takeaways I want to leave you with today. And these are eternally important. The first one, we are totally unable to have relationship with God apart from the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which paid for our sins. We were created to have relationship with God, but because of the sin in our own lives, we cannot stand before a holy and righteous God as we are. We cannot do it. God is too just and he's too holy to allow sin in his presence. And if we are all honest, we don't actually want God to allow sin in his presence. If if we're honest, we actually want God to be holy. We actually want that. So for me personally, do you guys like it when the bad guy gets it in the end of the movie, right? Some of you are, have no idea what I'm talking about. Have you ever watched Lord of the Rings? Like it's these three epic films and the climax is like the eye of Sauron is exploded, right? And his whole kingdom comes crashing down. And it's like, yeah, all right. Or Harry Potter, right? Like you've got this whole series of books and films and then you see this, the face off of Lord Voldemort and Harry Potter and he defeats him with love and he's gone and we love it, right? Or my personal favorite, when Luke Skywalker is battling and Anakin uh, Skywalker takes Emperor Palpatine, throws him into the core reactor of the Death Star. Yes, I said Anakin because Darth Vader became Anakin when he chose the lights. Anyway, it doesn't matter. (laughs) Bottom line is this. Bottom line is this. We like it when the bad guy gets it in the end because we all agree that evil people deserve punishment. In our heart, that's what we want. A God that turns a blind eye to sin would not be the kind of God that any of us would want to follow. It's why it's, it's why we crave like community with people who are holy. I mean, what would heaven be like if God allowed sin in it? That wouldn't be heaven at all. So we all agree that we don't want evil to be allowed by God, but the problem is we're all sinners. That's the issue, right? 
So the list of requirements laid out in Psalm 15 cannot be possibly met by us. And there's nothing we can do to change that. So it would seem like there is no hope. It would seem like there's nothing we can do. But God in his infinite mercy came down on the form of man, Jesus Christ, the God-man, fully God and fully human. He lived a perfect life so that he could be a perfect sacrifice and pay for our sins. While we were still considered unholy and sinful, we were dead to God because of our sins and trespasses. Jesus willingly laid down his life to restore relationship with us. That's how much he loves us. And through the sacrifice, we've been forgiven. And now we meet every requirement laid out in Psalm 15 because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ that has been given and imparted to us. As Kevin said last week, we don't deserve anything from God. And yet we receive everything from God. Talk about good news. Man, that gets me pumped. We are totally unable to have a relationship with God on our own, but the sacrifice of Jesus Christ paid for our sins, so now we can. The next takeaway from Psalm 15 is a little bit more application, and that's this. The life of a Christ follower is defined by the things that we do. I think that, I'm hesitant to say this, but I'm gonna say it anyway. I think that too often in today's cancel culture, internet outrage, zeitgeist, um, I think we often end up defining ourselves by what we are against. I think if you log into any social media app and you spend just a couple of minutes on there, uh, it doesn't take very long to see a whole litany of things that Christians don't like and are boycotting and don't wanna be a part of. Now, don't misunderstand me. I think that standing against the evil of the world is actually really important. I think that it is. But we Christ followers should be identified by what we do, by what we do, not just what we are against. Our works do not save us. I wanna be really clear. I'm gonna unpack this a little bit because it's important for you guys to understand. Our works do not save us. Isaiah uses very strong words to communicate this in Isaiah 64. He says, we are all like one who is unclean. All our so-called righteous acts are like a minstrel rag in your sight. We all wither like a leaf. Our sins carry us away like the wind. You will never achieve acceptance with God on your own righteousness. You won't. But Jesus, as we said before, but Jesus achieved that righteousness for us when he went to the cross to die for our sins. So our works and our good deeds, they do not save us but they are the result of our being saved. When we fully understand what Jesus did for us on the cross, we begin to live our lives for his glory and not our own glory. And our love for Jesus Christ is overflowing. It will drive us to act for him. It will drive us to act on behalf of Jesus Christ, to be his hands and feet, as the Bible tells us. And through this, others will want to know him as well. The Israelites were called to live in a way that reflected God to the nations around them. Psalm 15 is a list of some of those things that they were called to live and the ways that they were called to live. We're called to live that way as well so others can see Christ in us. Again, Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount, this is what he had to say. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its flavor, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled on by people. You are the light of the world. 
The light of the world, we're supposed to illuminate. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. People do not light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all in the house. Well, what does that all mean? Well, in the same way, let your light shine before people so they can see your good deeds and give honor to your Father in heaven. Works come out of our faith. If we're honest with ourselves, if we truly look at the way we spend our time, our talent, and our treasure, can we say that our life looks like the kind of life that Jesus would live? Are we doing the things that Jesus would do? The life of a Christ follower is defined by the things that we do. The final takeaway is this. The life of a Christ follower is also defined by the things that we choose not to do. In Ephesians 4, 30-32, Paul has this to say, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You must put away all bitterness, anger, wrath, quarreling, and slanderous talk. Indeed, all malice. Instead, be kind to one another, compassionate, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ also forgave you. I think if we look at what we spend our time on, I know this is true of me. So I'm, I'm saying this to myself. I think if we look at what we spend our time on, if we take a hard look at what we ingest on social media and on all the various streaming platforms, I think we will see that we are often engaged and entertained by the things that God considers evil. I know it's true of myself. I'm not trying to be legalistic. Understand, I'm not. I'm not trying to say you can't watch TV. I'm not trying to say that. I just want all of us to look inside of ourselves and ask the question, is my faith watered down with compromise? That's what I'm challenging for myself and that's what I'm challenging for you. Some of us are playing Christian. We are. And we'll soon come to a crossroads where we're gonna have to choose, do we walk the life of a Christ follower Or do we follow what is acceptable in the world? Everything in the culture today is pushing us towards that end. It's pushing us towards drawing hard lines in the sand as to what we're going to go for and be a part of and what we're not going to be a part of. Do we stand up for what is right or do we just fall in line with the culture, accepting the things that God hates because it's no big deal? Some of us in this room, uh, we've already checked out. We're not listening You come to church every week. You come to church every other week. You serve on a team. So you're good. You got your fire insurance. You're free in Christ. So you can do whatever you want, right? I want to challenge you. Showing up to church or serving on a team is not enough to save you from the temptations this world has to offer. This isn't about your eternal destination. If you accept Jesus Christ as your savior and you follow him, you are saved. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about living as a Christ follower in this world. If you continually compromise, you will fall prey to your darkest desires eventually. Doing churchy things won't help your faith if you're living a life full of compromise and sin. So I have a team of about uh, 32 youth leaders. A lot of them are in this room right now. Um, They're really the reason why the youth ministry at this church is any good because the youth pastor is not really good at like having fun or being nice and stuff. So it's really... (laughs) I'm kidding. It's really about the youth leaders, right? They do such a great job. They're so fun and energetic. And and many of them make fun of me, believe it or not, um, because I'm constantly comparing what we do to my time in law enforcement or my time in the military. 
I'm constantly talking about it that way, right? Like, they're like, oh, are you going to tell us another military story, Noah? But I, I do that because, listen, my fellow Christ followers, we are in a real war. We are in a war. We often forget that there is an enemy that knows our weaknesses and is waging a spiritual attack on us, ready to destroy us once we compromise our beliefs and give him a chance to do it. The Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 5 through 8, Be sober and alert. Your enemy, the devil, like a roaring lion, is on the prowl, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, strong in your faith. If we call ourselves Selves Christ followers, then we need to be agreeing with God about our sin and turning away from it, taking those really hard steps to put that sin behind us. And that sounds difficult, and it is. It's really difficult. But there is really good news. We don't have to do any of it alone. The things that we're not supposed to do as Christ followers, those sins that we struggle with, We don't have to get over that stuff alone. We have a savior and we have a body of believers and and that body of believers will surround us and help us. So I've said this many times today, but I'm gonna say it again. Jesus has already died for our sins. And if we believe that and choose to follow him and allow him to be the Lord and God that he already is, because he's already God, But if we allow him to be the God of our lives and we choose to follow him, then we have been forgiven of those sins and we have the Holy Spirit within us. And the Holy Spirit is ready to take the faith of a mustard seed and make it be the thing that will help you to overcome that sin that you're struggling with. He will use it to overcome the greatest sins in our lives. If we will come to God humbly and pray for his strength to help us put those favorite sins behind us, he'll do it. He's good on his word. Try him. And we, again, we have this great family of families, this body of believers called the church so we can surround each other and pray for each other and help each other out as we grow in our faith. The life of a Christ follower is also defined by the things we choose not to do. So I'm sorry. I know I got a little preachy there at the end, guys. Uh, I, I get that way. Hold on. Let me take a drink here. Parched. I get that way. Because I'm actually saying these things to myself. When I write these messages, even for the youth, I'm I'm writing them to myself. And so that's why I get so passionate. So if I come off a little bit crazy, that's why. But before we leave, I want to say one last thing. My youth leaders and students in the room, they already know what I'm going to say. Because I say it every single time I teach. And I'll never not say it. God loves you. The creator of the universe loves you. God cares for you. He cares where you're at right now. And he wants you to dwell in his presence. He loves you so much that he willingly let himself be killed for your sins so that you could have relationship with him. And so he could have relationship with you. Who has the right to dwell in the presence of God? That's the question for today, right? The Christ follower who has been forgiven of their sins because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That's who has the right to dwell in the presence of God. And if that's not a great way to end this message, I don't know what is. So let's bow our heads in prayer. Please bow your heads, close your eyes, and open your hearts. Father God, I thank you so much. Uh, I certainly don't deserve to be up here, and yet here I am. And I thank you for this opportunity. I pray, Father God, that um, the words that I spoke today would fall upon the hearts of um, anyone that needs to hear it. 
And I ask, Father, that you would help us to always keep Jesus at the forefront of our thoughts so that we can strive um, to live like him and to have relationship with you, showing those around us your mercy, grace, and love. I ask, Father God, that you'd help us to have a great day today and to love each other more and to love you more. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the Vail Christian Church Podcast. If you have any questions, would like more information about our church, or would like to see the video cast of this message, please visit our website at www.vailchristian.com.